Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department, let's see more. Hello, I'm Conor Faulkner and this is Driving Life. Welcome to episode 40, where I talk to Paul Reed, recently CEO of the HSE and now chairing the Citizens' Assembly on Drug Use, but that's just the latter part of an extraordinary career. From growing up in Fingus and leaving school at 16, to trade union activism in Aircom and then a senior management role, I first met him 20 years ago, and since then he's been around the world working for Trocora, led operational reform in the civil service after the financial crisis. He ran Fingal County Council for five years, and then he led the HSE through COVID. Busy guy. But we managed to get a quiet hour for a long chat. Before we join him, I'd like to take a moment to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Doro Mobile Phones and Expressway Buses, two great companies in very different areas. They're very good to support us, so thank you very much. Don't forget to check out earlier episodes and other chats. It's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. So now, let's go and meet Paul Reed. Hello, Paul Reed. Um, good to see you. You're looking great. Good afternoon, Connor, and same to you, of course. Yeah, and listen, we're in your new abode, uh, as far as you have an abode, but um, we're on Parnell Square um, and in the borrowed offices of the Citizens' Assembly. Uh, what has you sitting here? Just recently taken up the new role as Independent Chair of the Citizens' Assembly on drug use. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating role and it's a fascinating process that I'm yeah, um, and it's 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 really really enjoyable. I'm enjoying it much more than I thought I might, and probably much more than your previous role, which was obviously enormously challenging as the chief executive of the of the HSE. Yeah, a very different role, um, but an equally kind of complex issue. Uh, yeah. So, so we will obviously get to all of those things, but um, not the place to start. Um, how does a fellow like you wind up doing jobs like that? And um, you grew up in Finglas in a large family. Um, I read you dropped, well, I know this, you you dropped out of school initially at 16 years of age. And look, let's not throw around cliches, but you, you wouldn't pick a youngster in that situation and suggest he's going to wind up in a role like chief executive of the HSE. What did you do? Did you actually drop out of school or did you choose to do an apprenticeship somewhere else? Or what were your thoughts? Yeah, I often say I'm never quite sure if I follow crisis or crisis follows me, <laughs> but we're always close by each other, whether it's in roles. But no, I grew up in a very working class area, Fingus West. Yeah. Um, a good community. I've heard my own family there, uh, but a tough community and mm. a tough working class family. I had, there were six of us, three boys, three girls in the family. And we were pretty much reared by our mother on, mm. her, on her own yeah. uh, for most of our lives. So, uh, Where was your dad at that time? Just family circumstances. Yeah. Your dad wasn't around, uh, one of those difficult working class areas yeah, of families. Look, generation before the dad might have been working in England. Or yeah, no, dad eventually came back at some stage later and you know, yeah. things reconciled with grandchildren better. But, you know, certainly when we were growing up, it was a very tough family situation. Mm. Uh, none of us in the six uh, of the family went beyond uh, intercert, if anybody right. remembers that phrase. Yeah, 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 I do, I do. Yeah, um, and so nobody did leaving cert and nobody went on to college directly from school. So 
And that's just the way it was. It was, yeah. you know, time to get to work and support the rest of the family. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a tough period. Uh, tough and time. you got to work. You went into Aircom. Yeah. No, I actually worked for two years before I went into Aircom. Oh, yeah, yeah, I worked for two years. If anybody remembers, my first job was as a trainee technician with when people used to rent their televisions. Oh, yeah. And, oh, uh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, telly sales. Yeah. So, you know, we used to deliver televisions to people home with a box on the side for putting in your 50p slot. Uh, <laughs> so I worked in the kind of stores in that area or you know, training as technicians. That was my first job and I did a couple of other jobs um, as well and then ultimately joined Aircom, or sorry, it was the Department of Post and Telegraphs. Yeah, yeah, P&T. P&T, P&T. 1982. So joined there as a, most people say they started at ground level, where I actually started underground. <laughs> I was a, a cable jointer. An underground cable joint. There you go. I was underground and up and down poles and yeah. exchanges. And Jesus, that world has changed out of all recognition, hasn't it? I mean, that was a state-owned, creaking, much criticised, uh, flaky utility. Um, and the comms revolution came along and Aircom story. So what did you do in there? What got you promoted up the chain? Yeah, so I, I, I suppose I started as... I, actually spent about three years on the trade union side. I yeah. became a trade union official. I after. did know that. Yeah, yeah, so I was that classic poacher turned gamekeeper. Yeah. Uh, but I progressed through, I guess, the technical engineering grades and then was a trade union representative for about three years, communications workers union. Um, and then, you know, I had a strong desire. I had studied at night time, so I did yeah. a degree and eventually did a master's. Uh, so I'd studied hard um, and then eventually took up a management role in sales, believe it or not. So oh, I went nice, from okay. operations into sales, kind of setting up call centers as they were at the time, mm. uh, contact centers, and progressed through again management grades, did a bit of marketing, and then back into operation, and ultimately and eventually ended up as the executive director of the networks, the yeah. ICT operations, uh, and sitting on the board. Huge job, huge job. And um, so you got full value out of the masters we did together. <laughs> we did, got full value in many ways, yeah, uh, yeah, some yeah. great fun. Uh, and no, it certainly helped me. And I think, you know, in hindsight, when I look back of many of the early years I've just described to you, you know, when I do look at my early bringing, it actually helped me in many ways. Yeah. But I didn't get the natural route. What I did get from it was a few things. Uh, number one is, I guess in terms of leadership, I got that sense of humility, you know, mm. always keeping yourself grounded. Yeah. And uh, knowing, you know, count your blessings where, where I saw many of my schoolmates end up in criminality or in drugs or... Um, suicide. And you were you were raising a family in, in West Finglas yourself at that stage? Yeah, again, married with a mortgage at the age yeah. of 21 and <laughs> two kids by the age of 26. I uh, thought I was bad. You yeah, were, yeah, studying at night time. Uh, yeah. So, you know, but I do count my blessing. I think one of the things I did learn from the earlier years that's helped me in management has been I, I've developed that kind of steely edge to yeah. be able to not be afraid of decisions, take on the big issues. Um, make yeah, well, I'm not the only one who knows that about you, but uh, mm. I, I may have known it uh, sooner than the lot of general public. <laughs> okay. um, and I thoroughly enjoyed that master's. It was a talented group we, we were, actually. It was a two-year master's at Trinity School of Business and uh, certainly stood me in great stead. Um, and anyway, you were a teacher's pet then, as I distinctly <laughs> recall, um, and destined for great things. And uh, so uh, progressed in Aircom, but then you chose to leave Aircom and you know you were a lifer at that stage practically. Um, what were the circumstances there? Yeah, twenty eight years in Aircom, yeah. uh, and then in two thousand and ten, having been through, as you described earlier, all the changes that yeah. happening, so becoming a state organisation into, uh, I suppose, a strategic alliance. Then we went on an IPO, 
and then we went through about four or five different venture capitalist partnerships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and at the end of, I think it was the sixth change. I feel I, a bit beaten up at that you know, point, really. Presenting in front of a board saying okay. what we need to do next, I just had lost. So, you know, I got the opportunity to exit, you know, with, with a package, which mm. was good uh, for me. Uh, left in 2010 and was absolutely committed to do something completely different. Yeah. Um, and. And that's what happened. I mean, you wound up doing a role for Troker, didn't you? I did. Yeah, yeah. I committed myself at the time. Everybody always advised take time out, take six months out. Yeah. And I said I'll do that. And after three weeks, I was bored (laughs) and frustrated (laughs) and tormented. Uh, So an offer came to me to work with the board of Troker Mm -hmm. uh, and go into their organisation and look at their kind of corporate organization you know okay. their governance issues the hr issues the finance issues you but ultimately loads of expertise under all of those headings yeah said. but ultimately you helped them with a strategy they were in about 30 different countries at the time so yeah. we, we worked on a new strategy to keep them you know at, it was at the time of the downturn 2010 right. so the funding had collapsed so we worked on a strategy to focus them in a core number of countries mm. and you know with, with focus but that's kind of somewhat easier in a business context. Yeah, it is. You're in a um, developing country saying we're pulling out. I, I, I do know the feeling. I, I, I was on the board of, a, of an NGO myself, mm. Plan International Ireland. Uh, the Irish branch is a little small and I was chair of that. But the big global federation is huge um, and very well known globally. And all of those challenges, um, you know, yeah. what, 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 what do you do? Um, so. It must have had its own reward. Did you get out into the field at all during? Oh yeah, I spent a lot of time overseas. I spent time in many countries in Africa, uh, Kenya in particular, but Mozambique, Zimbabwe, um, Ethiopia, and then obviously I was in Cambodia. Cambodia, I was in. um, And were these probably the most fascinating country was Myanmar, uh, Myanmar. Burma, Burma, yeah, as well. Wow, Um, and were these sort of trips you're out for a week working and then back or did you yeah. base yourself no you be based generally for a few weeks a couple of weeks in each right. place to try get a better understanding so you can form the strategic plan as well as going forward yeah. um but ultimately work with people who are working in the field and experience their experiences and it, yeah did i get anything out of it absolutely just Fantastic. it really recalibrates your value system yeah uh, when you go and visit countries that are in such developing countries and you visit families who have nothing yeah. and want to give you something it's it, it is extraordinary it's yeah. very humbling and mm. uh, you can despair as well because you can look at the setup of some of those challenged countries and just go oh my god it's a it's a multi-generational project it's you know can i do anything more than a yeah. bucket's worth of help in an ocean of trouble yeah well funny enough and i had a different experience later but Anytime I came back from those developing countries, I always came back with hope. I came back with, oh, actually, we are making a difference. Yeah. Uh, Troca is a good organization. The partners are good. Um, it's small in the big pool of things, but it is. People are benefiting. Communities yeah. are growing, uh, becoming self-sustainable. So I always came back with hope. But, you know, by contrast, just to completely jump, I went to um, Palestine one time right. uh, when I was in local government. We went over to... Um, a system and kind of some governance and local government issues and I really came back I was in the West Bank um, oh, wow. Ramallah and um, Hebron City and a few others we didn't get into Gaza but right. I came back with complete despair um, yeah I, I never yeah. forget it uh, yeah and again that is humbling you return to our little island and you realize that God you know the problems we have are our problems most of the world would give their Absolutely, absolutely. And it does change your own value system. It changes your own approach. 
you know, to issues and, you know, it certainly gave me, a, you know, count my blessings every day. I always have. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. So if there's a complete mental gear change from doing that, um, and I had to dream up what it was, um, I don't know, perhaps astronaut or perhaps chief executive of Fingal County Council, which is what you wound up doing mm. next. Well, now actually, I went from there. Oh, I, no, you were in the yeah. department for a while. Too, yeah, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform was just set up in 2011, right. just after a change of government. And there was a very nice role in there called... Uh, um, you know, I was to be the reform side of the house as part of public expenditure, and I was to be in Assistant Secretary Robert Watt had just taken over as oh, Secretary General, yeah. and I was actually away um, in uh, where was I? I was away somewhere with Troker anyway overseas in, in Africa, and I got a call to say, look, you know, you've got this role, will you come in? And, and it was to drive reform and drive change across the public service. Um, and I was all geared up. I said, "This, yeah, I was really, I wanted this role. Mm. It was time in the country it was in collapse." Yeah. Um, so I rocked up on the first day and I was talking to Minister Ren Howland, and um, he said, "How do you feel about the new role?" And I said, "I'm really looking forward to change management. That's what I do. I can do it. You know, looking forward to." It. And he said, "Oh, that's that's all very good, but uh, I actually need two billion euros of savings from you." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So yeah. instead of being Mister Reform, you're Mister you're Mister Cut. Yeah, so, you know, it was very quickly, when you have one big problem, it's usually easier to tackle. So we literally broke the two billion down into a billion of pay savings would have to be made, pay cuts, and a billion euro through procurement uh, and other rationalization savings. Mm. Uh, Short-term and long-term ones, you know, turn a seven-year renewal cycle into a 10-year renewal cycle, push stuff down the road, or more no, structural stuff. Well, it was actually, it was actually, we couldn't push anything down the road, the Troika were in. Yeah. So they know, they wanted demonstrable savings now. Uh, so the pay cuts, if you think of the Haddington Road pay agreement back in 2012, yeah. that was the first negotiation of a pay agreement to negotiate the extent of cuts, <laughs> not the percentage increase. So wow. I led the negotiations with 26 trade unions at that time as appointed by government. And you know, it's uh, funny you should wind up there um, and in a sense having to make uh, an unpleasant, unpalatable, realistic case um, to your former trade union mm. uh, comrades. Yeah. Um, and I say comrade, at one stage you thought seriously about politics, didn't you? Were you a candidate for the Workers' Party? At yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, again, when I was active in, in Fingless West, uh, yeah. Crunchy Easter Rossa was, yeah, yes, uh, yeah. and the Workers' Party were growing, and I a strong social conscience. Yeah. Uh, got active, worked well with uh, Crunchy's. They were, in a sense, a properly socialist alternative to. Um, Sinn Féin, which, which came with the dark green stuff that you had to sign up to as well. Yeah, well, it emerged from a split, ultimately, yeah, in Sinn Féin, yeah. from the official Sinn Féin and yeah. uh, provisional Sinn Féin, and the history of Irish politics is full of splits, but that was one of them. But, yeah. um, but at the time, they had they actually got seven TDs in, in government at the yeah. time, 
and um, I, I really enjoyed it. And then I was offered to run in North Dublin, and I um, I bottled it. You bottled <laughs> yeah. it. You didn't fancy the name up on the poster up on the polls, and it was maybe it was before the day when social media would have tortured you in a row. Well, like before that, social media, yeah. but the posters are ready. Uh, really? Yeah, honestly, yeah. Chops. got the photographs taken, and um, I just had, I, I, at the time I made a call and I just said, look, Jesus, I have two tiny kids, two young yeah. kids, I'm studying at night time, it's so much I can take on, and I said, no, actually, I'm really serious about politics, it's like, it's it's more a marriage than a career, you, 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 you are either utterly committed or it's it's not going to fly at all no absolutely and look the trade unions was taking up a lot of my time at the time anyway so yeah. you're working nighttime the trade unions people are ringing you at all hours so i just felt it was one it right. was too much but that is in your dna so you would you would approach a social problem um from the left if you like and yeah. you find yourself then in 2012 having to talk to the and, and essentially tell them um look lads this is the situation how, how did you that. Yeah, and everywhere I say this, I give great credit to the trade union leadership. Like, mm. you know, there's not many countries, no countries in the world. We I often presented to OECD countries about what we did and were fascinated. So the trade union leadership stood up uh, for that period of time to have pay cuts, extra hours worked yeah. and a loss of allowances. I suppose the far-sighted thing that everybody had to get their head around was that there was no point arguing about whose fault it was we hit the iceberg. Mm. No, not at that point. Mm. At that point, we had to patch the hole, didn't we? Yeah, and the way we worked it with the trade union movement was, you know, we had, we, we had choices. We could either cut the public service numbers significantly, mm. as in reduce jobs, uh, have a redundancy scheme, or we could protect the jobs uh, take what we expected to be, you know, a temporary hit for a few years. Yeah. Uh, and that's what the trade union signed up for through very difficult times. Yeah. And, um, um, and that sort of social cohesion in Ireland, I think, probably aided our recovery. Um, you could, lots of people could criticise it as an imperfect, lumpy recovery and loads of challenges, housing, all sorts of challenges out there. Um, but as you were saying earlier, compare us to most other places in the world and, and we've pulled together well. No, and that's it. And look, I think even during COVID, when you see the bounce back uh, yeah. in the economy that's happened, I don't think it's been a fluke. I think it's a combination of the sports government put in mm -hmm. uh, in terms of keeping business afloat and alive and the public's response. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of your kind of next mission then mm -hmm. or where you wound up after that, uh, is you were in Fingal County Council mm -hmm. um, as chief executive in there. Yeah, CEO of Fingal County, which is one of the four Dublin local yes, parties. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, it's probably the, it is sorry, the, the biggest, fastest growing population in Ireland, the youngest, fastest growing, biggest population, or fastest growing population in Ireland. And th this would be a peer role to people who will uh, know Owen Keegan in yeah. Dublin. Yeah, 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 I would have worked very closely with yeah. that. I mean, I have to say, I was there for five years exactly, and there was never a day I felt at work. It was just really yeah. fascinating time. I had 40 councillors. Uh, we had a really good relationship with the councillors, um, mm -hmm. but more importantly, that the communities I was working with. One thing about the difference between central government and local government I found is central government is very policy orientated, and you know it can be a bit abstract. You get into local government, it's all about doing. And between you, do you think he did a good job in that period? I mean, if you look back now, you say, if I had. You know, made a call. I could have pushed through more social housing or more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I could have 
uh, prepared the ground for the housing crisis we're in now better than I did? Or do you have any regrets or anything? You well, well, actually, if you take Fingal, it was where the housing was happening at most, uh, at best in terms of housing construction. We did very creative deals with developers in terms of land swaps uh, or where developers were in problems. We would put the infrastructure in place. So it might be you know, building a bridge or mm-hmm. building some infrastructure. Uh, we would do it for them. Fingal had a good uh, cash reserves. Right. Uh, so we were quite creative on the housing front. Uh, but it, it was still, the homelessness was a really big issue then. And certainly one of the things that used to you know, really drain on, on my conscience yeah. was the level of homelessness we were dealing with. Well, it was very visible in Dublin City. Um, it you know, was a big issue. That is a, it's a terrible one. Uh, and I, I have no special wisdom as to why it appears to the eye to be worse now. Um, and, and again, not just in Ireland. Do you? Mm. Many European cities, famously San Francisco, you know, there's lots of places in the world. But definitely Dublin is one of them. It's distressing, really. Yeah, it is. And... Um, you can only think it's going to take a few years to get better because mm-hmm. uh, certainly we had an awful period again going back to the economic crash where there was no housing development mm-hmm. no but on your question yes certainly that was one thing that drains on me and always still does just the yeah. level of homeless that we were experiencing uh, but now i look back on fingal and, and we achieved quite a lot both in terms of bringing in uh, industrial uh, the idea supporting us and bringing in really big farm organizations and other organizations um, developing a really strong SME base through our local enterprise office supports mm-hmm. and developing a really strong tourism proposition with Falja Ireland. Uh, Very good, you yeah. Had to get out to the likes of Scaries and Russian, you know, really developing the coastal yeah. uh, line that we had. And all of those, yeah, 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 linking in with that. So, and then, you know, also the community development, there's really strong communities. Okay. And in Balbriggan, we had the foresight to put in a special task force and ask Brian Bremacraft to come in and chair it which was looking at some of the real social problems they had in Balbriggan right. and, and what investment we could do and what, what we need to prioritise. Yeah, and of course, generationally, your people in Fingless would have witnessed how those things play out if they're done poorly. Yeah, if you take the history of Fingless, Ballyfermot, Ballymun, yeah. you know, it's kind of congregating people from, uh, and having high social deprivation. They, they were all well-intentioned mm. uh, when designed, but mm. you know, they look back on them now and say, God, Ballymun was bound to fail, but, you know, Tower Hamlets were winning awards and mm. you know, it was the way to go. Uh, so they were well-intentioned. Yeah. Well-intentioned, look, and I, there's pressure on now to do similar again. Yeah. You know, my feeling would be best approach is having a mix of social housing in with um, private housing development as well. So you well, get the right famous mix. section 50 or whatever it is. Yes, which it, yeah, and the handover 5%. We yeah. in Fingal were getting up to 10%. In some cases, we were getting 20% because we were buying above and beyond the obligations of the developer. Very good. Mm-hmm. Um, so much good happened in there. Um, and then, because I was just you know getting my head around where's Paul these days, mm-hmm. well, he's in Fingal, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then the HSE. Um, that's a huge appointment obviously. Um, how, how did it come about? Was there a, how explicit was the process? Did you, you yeah. know, begin by seeing the job in the hurdled? Yeah, a couple of things. At a professional, personal level, I was five years in Fingal. I went in when a new council was elected oh. and I left the day the new council finished up. So on my mind up to that, I was thinking, okay, decision time, I had to stay for another full council term. Right. Um, or, you know, see in, into another council or you know, do I do something different? And when I left Aircom at the time, I committed to myself I was going to do five different things. Oh, you did know? you? Yeah, I said, yeah. I'm not going to end up just falling into 
you know, another role. Mm. Uh, so if you take deeper fingal, sorry, troper deeper fingal, um, and the HSC is four. So I was still wanted to do something different again. So didn't apply for the role the first time I came around. Mm. And they didn't fill it. And then, you know, I put my name drink the second time around and got it. Well, I taught a lot about it because I know it's a very big massive, job, massive, massive job. And it's always political mm. and it's highly public. Uh, I'm not a person who generally seeks, uh, you know, to have a public profile. Yeah. But I knew once you put your name in that role, that that's where you're heading. Yeah, a giant job, um, mm. a giant organisation. You could do, God, you know how people are mm. doing podcast series about what's wrong and what's right in the health service. I, I, my wife works in there, so does my sister. Okay. Uh, everybody, everybody has a story. Mm. Um, so you arrive into this um, behemoth, this gargantuan mm-hmm. thing, uh, which employs over a hundred thousand people. Hundred and fifty thousand. Hundred and fifty thousand now. Yeah. Um, accounts for what percentage of Ireland's total? It's twenty-two spend, billion 22 in total. Billion. Yes, yes. Um, a, 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 enormous sense. entity. Um, in theory, there was an umbrella policy called Sláinte Care, mm-hmm. which was to take the political heat out of all. These are the list of things that all political parties agree on. So let's mm-hmm. go ahead and do them. Um, was that your to-do list coming in? Yeah, if you like, the strategy is set by the politicians, political system, the, mm. you know, the policy, they said to follow. And the po- policy was launch care, which has all the right elements to it, which was relieve the pressure on the hospital system and emergency departments in particular, move other care into the community, yeah. uh, give greater um, support for general practitioners and pharmacy and the role they can play in the healthcare system, uh, and treat people outside of a hospital system where they can have it. Uh, that's, that's the principle yeah. of it. Particularly all the persons, and what about uh, um, you know cost and insurance and care according to need rather than means? Yeah, well, they, there's <clears throat> certainly a big ambitious goal and slash yeah. care again policy for universal uh, healthcare. Mm. I think it was initially developed by James Riley at the time, Minister. Much kind criticised, Minister. Much criticised and kind of abandoned, really. You know, so you know he didn't help himself. His he, uh, um, well. He didn't help himself, I think. I mean, I might chat to him someday. I'd love yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually worked with him afterwards in Fingal quite a bit because yeah, he was a senator at the time. Yeah, yeah. Once, but, but, um, oh, and I would have worked with him myself in Brennan Hill and would have met himself and their Secretary General quite a bit at very yeah. tense budget discussions <laughs> uh, when I was in Deeper. Yeah, um, okay. So, um, so, yeah, look, I mean, the Irish health system is different compared to the NHS quite a bit. Mm. Um, but our history of the Irish health system is very different. And number one, obviously, we have a lot of voluntary uh, hospitals that are generally in religious orders. Yeah. Is their history? They were there doing it. They had pre-existing infrastructure. They filled the gap. Yeah. Yeah. Education uh, the same, of course. Education, yeah. So they filled the gap. They filled the void. They provided a great service. Uh, that's one difference. The second difference is, particularly with the Irish construct now, is you know over fifty percent of people have private insurance. Mm. So we have a very significant private health operator. And um, now, is that a bit self-fulfilling? They, they, they have private insurance because, um, you know, perceived delays in all the public things. You want to have private insurance and that then becomes self-perpetuating. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, there's a couple of things that sound, when you, when you say that it is. First of all, if you're extremely sick, whether it's cancer mm. or cardio, um, and I would say, you know, probably the place you want to be is in the public system. 
Mm. Uh, there's no doubt. You know, it's where the specialists yeah, are. I, I know. I mean, I've heard criticism of, for example, outsourcing hip replacements, mm-hmm. um, and then showing that the outsourced partner has got better stats than mm-hmm. the uh, you know the, the service provided publicly. Mm. And you know that's because they can cherry pick the handy ones, and if yeah. anything goes wrong, they send them back into the public sector. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and look, I was never an advocate of an either or, you know, yeah. and our philosophical debate. There is an absolute role for private healthcare here in Ireland, and we need it. And my uh, approach uh, was to um, integrate more with the private health system and utilize it more. But certainly, you have hit a point. A lot of the more complex care, and particularly when you get to older persons, yeah. the, reliance is on, the reliance is on the public state health system you know yeah and if that's to be the way it is that's mm-hmm. fine you know mm-hmm. in a sense we, we want a health system that works we're prepared to pay for it clearly we have one of the world's most expensive healthcare mm-hmm. systems and actually although there's a tendency again our earlier conversation if you look at globally accepted indicators for outcomes um our health performance is, is pretty good yes i mean that's that's one thing our you know longevity of age yeah. people live longer here and that's a function of health, many other things, yeah. but health as well. Well, it helps not to be in a war zone and to have food. Yeah, yeah. Care, um, sorry, um, cancer care, cardio care, uh, you know, we rate quite high mm. against OECD benchmarks as well. So, so we must be doing something. So as you arrive in with um, whether it's a reform mandate or here's this launcher care policy you're, you're implementing, um, but you know, they say that no battle plan survives mm. contact with the enemy. Um, you had as far as I well, probably loads from your desk, but as far as I could see, the two spectacular, unforeseeable crises that you had to deal with almost the moment you arrived um, was the cyber attack and, of course, COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe on the cyber attack first, uh, how did you find out about that? And uh, you were chief executive of the health service at the time. When did you appreciate the scale? Yeah. And it's hard to divorce the cyber attack from COVID, but just to give you the kind of time frame, if you take the period January to May 2021, it was the worst period of COVID. Yeah. Our hospitals had 2,300 people in them. We had double the amount of people needing ICU that we had available beds for. We had to develop temporary yeah. high dependency in the beds. And uh, everybody was, was watching, anxiously watching the numbers. The yes. Numbers yeah. Like- Every day. It was the worst period, yeah. the highest levels of sickness we were experiencing uh, overall. Uh, and our health system was exhausted. Our staff were absolutely exhausted. So that was the context, right? Yeah. Uh, certainly January to about April. End of April, early May, it started to get a lot better. Trends were all coming down. Our hospitals were getting relief. factor there as well, coming out of winter. Yeah, but COVID trends were happening generally, were yeah. happening better, much better. And so we were getting some relief. Um, everybody's shoulders was picking up again publicly, but certainly yeah. within the health system. And I always remember on Thursday to 13th of May 2021, we were doing our weekly press conference. And I was in good form. The journalists were good form. Everybody, everybody, of course, knew your face and voice from the daily, and I do mean daily yeah. appearances on Six One News and everything else besides, yeah. uh, day in, day out, week in, week out. Uh, so the public would have observed. Uh, Paul Reed's in cheaper form. Today. Yeah, yeah, and we were, and even the journalists were in good form. So we were, we dared that it was a Thursday briefing. I went home to my wife that evening, and we hadn't seen much of each other at all. Uh, and I just said, look. 
let's get a weekend break. Let's let's plan it over the next couple of weekends. Just get away. And and, and she yeah. said, are you sure? And I said, no, we're going to do it, right? Went away to Leitrim now or away further than that? Oh, somewhere far in like Leitrim, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's get somewhere and spend some time together. Anyway, went to bed, uh, exhausted, and uh, went to bed about 10 o'clock that night. At 2 o'clock, my phone rang, and it was the ICT director. Yeah. And he said, Paul... At 2 a.m.? Yeah, 2 a.m. He said, Paul, we have a cyber attack, and all our systems are, sh- are shut down. Uh, so I had to, had to kind of... Say as I dreaming, yeah, as yeah, I, yeah, what yeah. was happening here? Um, so obviously it t- ticked off, and then by six o'clock I was on a call with our board and the chairman, mm-hmm. advising them what happened. By seven o'clock was in morning Ireland. By ten o'clock was yeah. in Clareborn. Just again to keep that principle of being open and telling the public. But we knew nothing at that stage, other than there had been. All we knew, attack. all we knew was there's an attack, and it's all all systems are shut down, and all of our health system. Wow. And how profound was that effect? There were a couple of isolated systems that kept running in some of the hospitals, but how, how debilitating was it? Was it literally all stop? There were two profound effects. You One can't was, tell a patient to stop bleeding. No, two profound effects. One was a human aspect of it, because all of our health system, they were exhausted. Yeah. Right? They were just beginning to see a light, and now we had to deal with this. And all of us in the leadership team, we just felt this was very unfair, you know. <laughs> like, can, how can a criminal organisation do this to a health system? Yeah. So that was the human Ethics aspect. classes for Russian criminals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but then there was actually how do we get this health system? How how do we protect patients? Mm-hmm. Um, and all hospitals, all the health system, very quickly had to put in manual processes yeah. immediately. So, for example, um, you know, you couldn't get a scan here in this ward, say, for, in, in the same ward, and get the doctor. Yeah. You only had one machine walking down the far end of the hospital, couldn't talk across to each other. No, your network yeah. was gone. Uh, so all hospitals had to put in place what they called runners. They were literally people literally with runners. runners yeah. Yeah, and they would run from one end of the hospital, run back with the test uh, for the consultant to see, etc. If we were taking blood tests, which are not normally yeah. all done through systems, you know, a mistake in two decimal points could be lethal. Is definitely yeah. kills a person. Yeah. Uh, so we had three levels of checks. person doing the check, a checker of that, and a checker of that again, uh, and recording them all. Uh, but masses of elective work lost and all that sort of stuff, and a heavy, heavy blow. Massive elective work loss, all people showing for appointments, we didn't have their data. Yeah. So the whole system just collapsed. Yeah. Mind you, my anyway. wife would tell you that can still happen today. Yeah. Whenever yeah. Not to work. So who received the ransom demand and how physically did that mm. come in? Was there an email saying, dear Paul, um, we are your cyber attackers, here's your ransom demand? No, what actually happens, <laughs> what happens is, um, first of all, they encrypt or locked, lock all of your systems or yes. your system access, um, and then they leave a note uh, on one of the systems. Okay. Okay. Um, and the note says, uh, it's a ransom demand. You know? And what did it say? It, uh, look, it basically says, and some of this is public, so you know, it basically says there's a ransom demand, we, we've shut down your system, and uh, here's how you engage with us. Right? And, and was it pay Bitcoin to this account? No, it wasn't specific. It just right. starts a pro- it, it sets out to start a process for okay. you to engage. Uh, so, immediately at that stage, we obviously engaged National Cyber Security Centre, yeah. um, but also Garda Connor. And their their processes on. And the what's the playbook then? You know, play playbook then or is just blanket completely. Or no, the playbook is, is two things. For us, we made a very clear distinction. We in the health service were getting on with 
uh, trying to fix the ICT system, see yeah. how we can gain access and get the manual process in place. And everything else is left over to the guards. Right. Um, so we kept ourselves completely removed to that. The security forces of the state taken over. Um, so and they you had no, I mean, I think Ireland admirably um, made the decision early on that there, under no circumstances will we pay a ransom. Yeah, Taoiseach very clearly came out yeah. the following morning. Uh, and said we weren't going to pay a ransom. Yeah, and uh, I think we all approve of that call, but that was the Taoiseach's call, that wasn't you, was it? Yeah, that's a policy decision Yeah, uh, yeah for, for governments to make. And we have, you know, I always respect that, so that's that's a call for them to make. Um, but equally, like we all know, that's, that's only one end way that goes. Yeah, we start exactly. that too, you know. So, you know, we left that up to the security versus state. Obviously, they were, they were linking in with us, mm. uh, but we kept ourselves removed. They kept us removed uh, from that process. And... About a week later, I think there was a lot of international um, exposure of what had happened yeah. and a lot of international pressure. Um, and about a week later, uh, we were returned what's called the keys, okay. literally the, the decryption right. codes uh, to decrypt our systems, um, which was a massive relief. So the criminals, for whatever reason, made a decision that this attack wasn't going to make a return uh, and just gave back the key? Well, it's not quite as simple as that because we know at that stage they have had, a, had access to all of our information. Yeah, they could have been stripping data from everywhere. Yeah, yeah. and we know, um, you know, again, this is very public, we also know that a lot of that data was put on the dark web. Right. You know, which so may be Irish mobile. So if you're looking at your mobile going, is that the HSE text? And yeah. Jeez, I don't know how they get yeah. it. You know. Well, as it happened, uh, and again, security forces were looking after all of this, but uh, as it happened, there was no evidence that that data put on the, on the dark web was accessed or used or sold off. You know, there's ways they can trace movement, but yeah. there was no access to it. But there was a data exposure. Um, and then ultimately, we had to learn our lessons, literally mend our fences. Somebody told me that the cost was around about 400 million in the end. I don't know how accurate that is. No, I mean, there's, there was a figure which I put out myself at the time, didn't put out, but our, our guesstimate was it was going to cost about 100 million, which was mm. a whole suite of infra infrastructure replacement that we'd have right. to put in uh, and take the opportunity to put in, uh, you know, more modern systems, etc. Uh, and replacement of certain PCs and infrastructure as well. Um, so, yeah, it was a capital cost. It would be hard to estimate. Yeah. The operational cost yeah. of it, yeah. But thankfully, you might get to four hundred million if you total them. Yeah, if you total all the operational impact yeah. of we, it took sixteen weeks before we were back. So even when wow. you get those encrypt decryption keys, we could not just put all those systems live Clearly back in the not, network. No, yeah. So they're all contaminated. Yeah. So we had to uh, strip them all aside in simple terms and IT terms. Yeah. Uh, and rebuild every system in a phase basis and a prioritized basis. And after that, then did you get a weekend in Leitrim? It was a long time after that, I think. Wow. No, it was a long time. Wow. But it, that was kind of why it's hard to divorce from COVID because yeah. that's what our hospitals were dealing with as long, along wow. with this. You know? And of course, COVID itself, um, you know, it, it's it's clearly a very well-documented piece of recent history. Um, uh, how soon into your tenure did, did it uh, break as a huge crisis? When had you started? Literally, I started in May 2019 and this right. started in January. We started looking at what was happening in COVID. I called my first crisis management team yeah. in the middle of January, okay, uh, the yeah. third week in January. 
So while people often have the milestone memories of the end of February yeah. and March uh, after Paddy's Day. Yeah, well, the Varadkar's speech. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually in France listening to Macron's speech at the yeah, very same yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, and we were in we were in government buildings all throughout that night. Yeah. Uh, T-shirt was away in the States and we had to communicate with him. Um, but but third week in January we were starting to watch what was happening in Wuhan and um, we through the Chinese ambassador here we had video calls we had calls to their medics uh, to understand what was the illness what was yeah. the treatment what was the respiratory issues upper tract lower tract what was the conditions we had to treat and I always remember um, subsequently we had a call with uh, in Bergamo yeah, but you remember the scenes horrific scenes in Bergamo in Italy oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that was the, the, the almost iconic memory of the coffins and army trucks um, in northern Italy. Hmm. Scared the hell out of everybody. Well, you know, at that period in time, I remember we had conference calls with medics in in those countries trying to understand what was happening. And and I always remember it because I had a group of clinicians uh, around me when we were on this call. They wanted to understand the medical terms, the the medical treatments, etc. And um, I remember looking at those and they looked scared. Yeah, uh, and it's very rare you see medics looking scared. No. And uh, any patient will tell you it's not a great sign if your doctor no. looks scared. So they were <laughs> quite angst, uh, and I was quite angst. And that yeah. I always remember that that time, you know, I was scared, mm. uh, and I felt a huge weight on my shoulders. Yeah. You know, this is this is massive. Um, now you'll feel that in an ordinary winter when there are patients on yeah. trolleys. Yeah, um, but you headed into. Um, well, I mean, what were your daily challenges? There was a communications task to the public, and you did that yeah. uh, well. But operationally, what, what were the... Well, there were, there were two big challenges immediately that we had to mobilize. First was, while well, I say I had a huge weight on my shoulders, and we went into government and we, uh, we presented um, mm. what we feel we would need in terms of tackling this. Uh, and I must say, at that stage... I saw the best of the state, the Irish state, right. in play because I no longer felt this is us having to run a health system out of this or get a health system, get the public through this. Um, the Taoiseach at the time, which was Leo Radker, yeah. he called in all the state agencies. So we had all the, the IDA, um, uh, Defence Forces and Garda Shikana, and they all were in a room and I briefed everybody and uh, immediately I knew we had the full state behind us. Yeah. So this was the public service at its best. Well, do you know, uh, we contrast that with the, the negotiations in 2012, we, we weren't truly sovereign. And mm. um, it's interesting, globally, the response to the pandemic was print the money, print as much as we bloody need, mm. don't stop it, just keep it going. Mm. Um, and you wonder, why wasn't that the response to the financial crash when it occurred? Uh, why did we condemn ourselves globally to austerity as the treatment for that one? Yeah, well, I suppose two different, very different scenarios. You know, yeah. one you knew, you certainly knew the... Um, well, we certainly taught uh, pandemics happen for a period of time. Yeah, you need to get yourself it. through it. Um, but little did we know it was going to take probably the best of three, the best of three years. Mm. Um, so getting back to your question, so that was one thing: get the whole estate uh, on yeah. board for us. Um, and getting back to some of the early days, I mean, something I often talk about is, you know, we did have to build those temporary morgues. Right. Yeah. We did have to try secure those refrigeration trucks. Because we knew the morgues and our hospitals weren't going to cope with the volume of deaths that were projected wow. in the first phase. Like just 20,000 deaths projected yeah. in the first phase. And the, and the shortest synopsis of it, I suppose, is through tremendous social discipline um, right across the country. We managed to just about keep the sandbags um, 
an inch above the level of the rising water. Um, congratulations to all, but it was a close thing, wasn't it? Yeah, and you know that was the most inspiring and galvanizing and motivational piece that kept us going uh, through it. Because people often say, "Oh, you were through a tough time," but I always went to work thinking I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm going to work. Mm. I used to think that people have lost their jobs. People might be more worried about their business. Yeah, yeah. All the people who were isolating, um, you know. But the social cohesion was so motivational for us, you know. Practically everything we were asking of the public, yeah. they were doing, yeah, uh, and that was phenomenal. Well, you know, I, I think the public understood the issue, and and maybe we can flatter ourselves we were a bit less prone to some of the disinformation and nonsense that uh, was thrown around. We were. We expected that to be worse. Yeah, we expected to get more traction, uh, particularly when it came to the vaccination program. Yeah, yeah. We had a lot of concerns, um, lots, you know, security concerns and the vaccines and others, mm. um, and we had the world's best take up. On the vaccination yeah. program of 98.8 percent yeah which is you know i think is something to be proud of mm. um so you, a, a lot of your previous chapters paul had been five years uh, five mm. years in fingal you felt that was a punctuation mark mm. um you were three years into a five-year deal in the hse and um, now i'd say they felt like a long three years in dog mm. ears yeah in terms of what you <laughs> yeah, yeah, through. yeah um but but why leave the hse at that point yeah, well, it was three years and nine months oh, when I left. Uh, but you're right, it was, it was a five-year term. I had to make a call then, and, and it was a, a couple of things. First of all, from a personal level, um, I wanted to give some time back to the family. And I know that yeah. always sounds very bland and very cliche, but throughout my career, you know, even my early days of my career, I was studying at night time. Yeah. I, I, you know, the kids were downstairs, my wife was walking. I'm upstairs studying five nights a week, you know, so it missed a lot. Yeah. yeah. What happened, we've two young grandchildren now, and I kind of made a call to myself. I want to spend time with them. One of them's in Texas. Well, they both live, they're both, yeah, both brother and sister. They are brother and sister. My son and his wife are buying a girl now. So when grandchildren came along, I kind of said, I really want to be able to spend time, to be flexible, I want some flexibility back in my life. I want to give time back to my wife, who'd sacrificed a lot throughout yeah. my career. The roles that you've been doing would be immersive roles. Very demanding, yeah. Time, yeah, know. so it's demanding. And look, I, I suppose in the famous phrase by the New Zealand Prime Minister, she, she had nothing left in the tank. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of felt yeah. it's probably time for the health service as well. You know, the I, next phase I, I, I met you around about that time, and um, just socially, I, I think mm. it was the college re reunion thing. We yeah. met up by WhatsApp for a pint, um, and we were surprised and delighted that you were there, yeah. uh, busy and all as you are. Yeah. But uh, I think you it, it had just broken, or you were just saying that you were stepping down at that, or anyway, yeah. Uh, um, and we were amazed uh, that you'd made that choice, but delighted for you, as I say. Yeah, look, it felt right then, yeah. and. Okay, a few months out, and it still feels right. I think yeah. it was right for me. It was right for the health service. Um, I, it wasn't easy. It broke my heart. I, I had a fabulous team around me. Mm. Uh, they sacrificed quite a lot. We, we were had, they surprised when you left early? Yeah, yeah, quite shocked. Yeah, there was you know because we had built up great camar yeah, camaraderie. Yeah. You know, as you do in a crisis, uh, we got fun. Yeah. You know, in, behind it. As you do in a crisis. Yeah, as you, you know, do. It does yeah. bond the team. Yeah. yeah, bonds us, and so you know. It was the first time in my career where I felt I was leaving friends right. as well as professional colleagues, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so um, as I've left jobs, okay, move on. 
Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, you know, in a world where we talk a lot about sort of, you know, mental health and balance and work and, work and mm-hmm. life and all that and gratitude, you, you do feel it was the right call. Uh, oh, no, yes, I did then. I was, I was sure of it. Um, yeah. I contacted the, the chairman, contacted the minister, contacted the Taoiseach um, and advised them of it yeah. and my reasons for doing it. And they were very supportive. And mm-hmm. so, you know, uh, I do feel I left, you know, in a good way because sometimes you can, you can fall out of these roles. Well, I mean, as I say, it was longer in dog years, but I mean, mm. it, it was bookended at the COVID mm. crisis. Um, and and you, you, you left at the point when the crisis was over. Mm. We've been discussing COVID for many, many years, but yeah. uh, you, you left at the point when the crisis was over, really. Yeah. And look, you know, being a public profile person through that period is not something that comes natural to me. Mm. Um, and that, that's, that draws a lot of energy as well. And, um, you know, so we all did what we had to do. Um, but, you know, I'm not a natural public profile person. It was never, um, yeah, no, it, it was never your first love, really. Mm. Um, and, you know, mind you, that's a good thing. I, th- I think that mm-hmm. you know, people trust you or have trusted you when you do talk. Thank you. Um, so it's great. So a very different role now. And, uh, you know, interesting one, but you know, order of magnitude, not the same um, de- demands on you. Um, but you're chairing the Citizens' Assembly uh, and the particular module that's looking at uh, drugs use and drugs misuse. So, yeah, fun doing that. Yeah, and we took time out, myself and wife, we were travelling through New Zealand and Australia, and I got a phone call to say, you know, what I do this. and Just you know, when I think I'm out, yeah, keep pulling me. And in fairness, you know, if the Taoiseach asks you to do a role, it's... Um, you know, it's a privilege. Yeah. So most people will take the T-shirt call. Yeah. So ple- pleased, obviously privileged, uh, but secondly, it's something I care a lot about. Yeah. It's something I've experienced in. Well, West Finglas, the effect had been devastating. Has there. been and still is. Yeah, and yeah. you know, as I we I look back in my classroom at school, I said to you earlier on, and you know, over fifty percent of the people either in drug got involved in drugs, got involved in criminality, committed suicide. Wow. So. It was a lot of, so I care about it. Yeah. I've seen it in, in my own circles. I've seen family circles. I've seen the impacts of it. But Do you come to it with a preconception? And not that that would be a bad thing. Mm. You're assembling a hundred random citizens on one level, so you want all views. Mm. Um, and it's good to have a chairman who, who, you know, cares deeply about the subject. But do you bring views to the table or are you just facilitating? No, I mean, first of all, we all have life experiences that yeah, shape yeah. us. But no, I'm very clear in my role in, in, as independent chair, it is to bring all of the diverse views into right. the deliberations for the assembly over the next uh, few months, next six assembly meetings. And so it is. And, and you know what's interesting? Even after the first assembly meeting, we were we got some feedback from the 99 assembly members. And one of the questions was, you know, how's your view now versus yeah. when you came in? And a significant portion of them said, oh, I'm not so sure. Yeah. I did come in with you. I want to get a bit more informed, or some of them even said, actually, I think I've changed my view. Yeah, or so, at least we all come to an understanding when you can. I think one of the great things about the Citizens' Assembly model, um, and we were saying before before we started the chat that it's been looked at internationally, yeah. it's just very, um, it, it tends to take the heat out of a conversation. Um, so it was probably the best national dialogue we were able to have on the thorny subject of abortion. Mm. Um, and we're using that model now in lots of other things. Yeah, and if you take the issue, this issue of drugs, illicit drug use, this is creating a very safe space to hear all views, yeah. you know, so it's not binary. Uh, some, many of the issues can be binary, but it's all held in a very safe space. And, yeah. you know, over six uh, months and over six assembly meetings, 
uh, we will hear one view that says, uh, for example, this weekend, uh, from, from tonight and throughout this weekend, uh, we're in Dublin Castle, mm. and we'll be discussing one of the challenges we have is how do we reduce the harm caused by illicit drug use. Right. So we're going to have, in my view, this is probably uh, the most courageous, the most brave, the most innovative discussion that's ever going to happen on drugs on this in this state, not okay. just this weekend, but throughout this period. And this weekend, we will have 20 plus people. There's no PowerPoint. These are not people's talking on the podium. These are 21 people with very lived experiences talking openly right. about the impact it's had on some individuals themselves, mm. uh, some families, the impact from loved ones within a family, uh, communities, yeah. uh, and indeed, you know, frontline workers who are dealing with it. So, But we will equally hear views of people who have a view that it doesn't cause me any harm. I can use certain dr type drugs and I don't receive harm. And there's another harm caused, which can be criminalization, yeah. you know, so. Well, you know, my, and, and I get all of that. There are high functioning, heavy drug users. Uh, look, starting with alcohol, the oldest drug of all. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I, I believe that's true. I tell you a concern I would have about legalization is the argument for it is it takes it out of the hands of the criminals. You don't know what you're getting in your, whatever it is you're buying. Um, but whose hands are you putting it into? Um, the behavior of big pharma in um, the United States, for example, or the opioid crisis there, um, legalization could mean normalization and therefore growth in use and growth of harm. Yeah, and I glad you said that because a lot of the public discourse is on legalization, criminalization, regulation, etc. right? Yeah. And those terms often get mixed up and confused. So sometimes when people say, for example, you know, think about the Portuguese model. We should adopt the Portuguese model. Yeah. The Portuguese haven't legalized drug use. They've decriminalized if you're caught in possession for personal yeah. use, small doses for personal use. Yeah. They've decriminalized. It's still a penalty. And they're still, you're still a But it's a, it's, a, it's a recognition. That but it's a recognition that they want a health-led, a stronger health-led yeah. approach than a criminalization approach. So so the terminology can get mixed up yeah. quite a bit as well. And um, we had Angarda Shekhana in with us um, at the first assembly meeting, and they were very clear uh, about how they would be against legalization, you know, because um, a number of reasons they feel, A, availability be stronger, we'll have more impact on our health system, but B, yeah. um, you know, we could develop some uh, drug tourism. You know, yeah. coming in in terms of where it's legalized so well, mind you it, it's being legal well depending on on what which drugs you're talking yes, about yeah. but uh for marijuana for example um, uh, and whatever one's views uh, i was reading somebody saying that new york essentially smells of weed these days mm -hmm. top to bottom smells of weed and um, is that a desirable outcome or? well look the, this is the debate that we're going to have you yeah. know with the assembly members and we're going to look at other countries going to look a lot of the states, various states have done yeah. different approaches. Portugal is often quoted. Uh, Germany are looking at it too. And then yeah. what drugs? Yeah. Uh, legalization, criminalization. Dutch have been doing it for years. Dutch have been doing it. And we've had international presenters interest in the first meeting. Yeah. And we're going to have some more later on. So, you know, that's the diverse view that I want to bring to the table. Um, mm. But actually, what I also want to make sure we bring to the table are the services. Because yeah. the debate can be get, get a bit polarized or binary on the issue of legalization, decriminalization. But actually, if you go in and talk to many of the people, and this weekend we're going to be in Kilmayan, who provide residential services for women and infants, right. uh, residential services for men. We're going to be in Merchants Quay, Ireland, yeah. who provide addiction services for homeless. Yeah. 
Uh, and if you go and talk to, just they're just two, if you go in to talk to any of these service providers, and I've asked them, I said, what's the most important issue for you out of this assembly? They're not necessarily talking about legalization, criminalization, regulation. They're talking about services, you know, right. the resourcing that they have, their capacity to address the demand that's coming at them. Uh, the issues around dual diagnosis, so you might have some drug issues and the mental health issues. People will often think that, well, it seems anecdotally that that is very often the case. And homelessness as well, you know, rough sleeping is just the, the very tip of, of homelessness. Mm. It's a much more serious mm. problem with homelessness and threat of homelessness. Likewise, mm. for drug use, the, the, the addict who, you know, God bless, has fallen hard enough now and is leading, needing help from the likes of Merchant's Key, mm. that's one. But then there's a you know a large multiple of people who are using and abusing drugs of all sorts. Yeah, well, we had a couple of kind of profound moments, I suppose, at the last assembly meeting um, just last month. And the Health Research Board presented the data. None of it was a massive surprise, but there's a few interesting things. Like one, the type of drug use has changed right. over the past six years. So there's now more cocaine, heroin, amphetamines used. Um, secondly, the use of drugs is quite pervasive all across mm -hmm. Ireland, all across uh, urban, rural mixes, um, but it does have a more harmful effect in marginalised communities. Those communities that are, you know, higher social deprivation suffer you know, more. Alcohol does too. Um, I think a lot of kind of social challenges or things that are socially disruptive or just plain bad for you tend to be worse in their impact the poorer the community is. And I think that is the more complex issue of which you know it's not just drugs and alcohol yeah. there are more social neglect issues yeah. and social investment and social care and social justice issues yeah. that Paths impact to opportunity and all that you know if, if every kid in fingers had the had the opportunity to walk the path that you'd walked you know it could be damn sure we'd have better outcomes whether you legalize drugs or not i'd be damn sure they would have wanted it yeah you know so uh, and we will have this weekend really brave courageous inspirational testimony from people who've, who've had suffered massive trauma, individuals uh, in addiction um, and their families. And when you hear some of the challenges they had in their early years, you know, you get a better insight into why people might use drugs, yeah. you know, so it's not just the drugs is the issue we will. You know, what, what, what I get when I'm exposed to conversations like that is a bit like you were saying earlier on, you really do have to check your Check your privilege and be a little humble. Yeah, I mean, we're we're putting in tomorrow um, psychological supports, uh, thankfully from the HSE. So, but for for the members, ninety nine members of the assembly who will hear this, right. it'll be quite challenging, be quite traumatic, um, and we'll have supports in place for them throughout the day or afterwards or next week. And equally, people who are watching it live stream, you know, we'll be providing yeah. direction you know, support. It, 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 uh, no wonder you're finding it such a, a, a stimulating project to be involved mm. in. That takes it off then, Paul, doesn't it? That's five things that you said you were going to do. That's number five, yeah. Well, yeah. this this sees me. It's, this piece of work is it's inspirational and it's, you know, hope we, our intention is to present, not our intention, our task is to present a report to government by the end of the year. Very good. Uh, and this will be one, it'd be really nice to just, um, we will be brave. We, 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 you know, we'll make our recommendations, whatever the assembly members take this. Mm. Um, and then it's out of our hands, then it's policymakers ultimately have no yeah. doubt. Well, uh, you know, at, at least it'll be a rational conversation and, and, and bound to be a worthy exercise. So what next for Paul Reid then? 
I don't know. It's uh, it's a very unsure space, and I like it. It'll, um, it'll include trips to Texas. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We just come back from Texas. We were over visiting a new grandson, and so you know, children are three and a half and just born. Uh, so yeah, we'll have more flexibility to be able to see them, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, I live in Carrick and you were, I know you were for years. You had, you had a summer home in Leitrim, and you lived in Finglas. Yeah. Did, did it tell you you're you're Leitrim now, really? Are you? Oh yeah, yeah. Just we've moved fully, uh, uh, so okay. we now live in a travel up this morning from Leitrim, and I travel up to Dublin two or three days a week with with this role and and other, and other things involved. Well, in, so you know, I probably owe a mutual friend of ours a few bob then because I met him once that you'd never move out of Finglas. So. Yeah, yeah, and uh, again. For all the issues I've raised about Fingless, uh, I loved that yeah. community. Uh, I really did. I still go in and talk to some schools and that, and uh, just areas, you know, desh schools and yeah, uh, schools who are struggling, and just relay my own personal story about, you know, growing up and, and uh, you know, there are other avenues. Yeah. If you don't get it right the first time or if you don't go to college, there, there are other avenues. Give them some encouragement. And you know you're 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 the walking role model for that. Um, well, one of them asked me a really good question last week. Sorry, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the school and this young kid about ten said to me, um, "What exactly are you?" <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know. If you meant, Is there a quick uh, answer to that? No, it was I'm too hard. Man. Do you remember from the? And no, the yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was talking about different jobs <laughs> and I said, well, "What exactly are you?" You know. What are you good at? I suppose right now you're a granddad, and shouldn't that be good enough for most? Yeah, no, no. I, look, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good place. And, yeah, uh, I've, I've had a great career. I've, there's lots more in the tank, um, but oh yeah, my god, you, you probably, you probably pack in another two careers in the the remaining time you have. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll see. Yeah. Well, listen, Paul. Congratulations, and thanks a million for. for thanks, Connor. It's a very good format for the chat. So well done to you. Thanks a million, Paul. Take care. So that's Paul Reed. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Let me know if you've any thoughts on the podcasts. Get in touch on connorfalkman at gmail.com. Do remember that you can access the full Driving Life archive of previous episodes at seniortimes.ie. Thanks again to Doro Mobile Phones and to Expressway Buses. And we're done. Drive safely, live happily, and come back and see us again. An will phone poke a newawet, an will knappy no fum nis orjawet, nis eskalehusaj, faker na phone intakata gwin, on show, egg daro, an von klishte is dani, gidi gohan la hai glina, agus taskina, ta rod egen, gogachtina, ta nismo olis, egg, daro, dot com.